Hi there, and welcome to Maxed Out. My name is Max Fawcett. I'm the lead columnist for Canada's National Observer, and I still can't get a crypto bro to come on the podcast and make their case. Ben Harper, I know you want to do it, and I know you know where to find me. This podcast is about having constructive conversations about public policy issues with people I might or do disagree with. I want to step outside my silos, and I want to encourage other people to step outside of theirs. Today is episode nine, The Firewall Frenemy. My guest is none other than Ken Bossacool, my occasional sparring partner on Twitter and a longtime conservative political strategist in Alberta. He's worked with Stephen Harper, Ralph Klein, Jim Dinning, Christy Clark, and Stockwell Day, and he was a co-author of the famous, or infamous, Firewall Letter, which argued that Alberta should assert itself in the same way that Quebec had by building provincial institutions like its own police force and a pension fund. But Ken is also an ardent supporter of carpet pricing, one who has fought for it within conservative parties at the provincial and federal level. He's been critical of the more nakedly populist elements of former Premier Jason Kenney's fair deal proposal, including its predictably pointless referendum on equalization. And he's pretty clearly at odds with the current style of conservative leadership, one personified by Danielle Smith and Pierre Poiliev. In other words, Ken Bossenkuhl is not quite the ideological firebrand that I used to think he was. There are, in fact, many shades of gray in there. And no, I'm not talking about his hair. And I think we'll get into them in our conversation here today. I wanted to have him on for any number of reasons, not least because he was one of the people that I actually had in mind when I was developing the concept for this podcast. But what I'm most interested in is getting a read from inside the conservative tent, or at least a lot closer than I can get to it and understanding whether it's trending in the same direction as the Republican Party to our South, and if there's anything people like Ken can do to stop that. So, Ken, welcome to Maxed Out. Uh, good to be sparring with you this morning, Max. I, w- I want to start by looking back at a piece you wrote uh, last October for The Line. It's an online publication co-founded by former National Post journalists Jen Gerson and Matt Gurney. I've written for it in the past. I think it's one of the brighter lights in our new media landscape. Uh, And in that piece, you wrote that, quote, Daniel Smith premiership, it seems to me, is all but certain to go down in flames as it crashes into conservatism, the United Conservative Party, and perhaps even Alberta itself. So five months on, do you still feel that way? I do. Daniel Smith came to power supported by a a set of policies and I dare say a, a set of people whose views I consider outside of the conservative mainstream. They were the Sovereignty Act, which I consider to be unconstitutional when conservatives believe in the rule of law. They rode in on an anti-vax, anti-measures to deal with COVID, which I consider to be anathema to conservatives who believe in medicine, who believe in protecting the vulnerable among us. And it just seems to me that those were the two big highlights that she ran in on, and she hasn't stopped talking about either of them. And those things, to me, put her outside of the conservative mainstream. Mainstream conservatives have always been a little uncomfortable with the sort of hardcore social conservatives on the one hand, but also the hardcore libertarians on the other. And I think Danielle Smith is so far into the libertarian camp as to put her, uh, in my view, outside of the mainstream. I actually believe at the outset of the race that 
for some of the reasons they're disqualifying people for running for nominations today, that you could have made a pretty strong argument that she should have been disqualified for running for that leadership for some of the things that she had said in the past. And arguably some of the things she even said during the race. I haven't changed my mind. She's gotten better. She's surrounded herself with some really, really good people. Maybe we can, who, who are within the more conservative mainstream. She's stopped talking about things that are getting her into trouble or maybe stopped talking altogether is sort of my assessment. She's, you see a lot less of her, but, uh, I have a deep anxiety about the, her approach, uh, to those two issues in particular, but th those are central to her, her leadership. We've seen, I think, a lot of polls over the last little while in Alberta showing the UCP doing better than than maybe a lot of us thought when she was elected leader. You know, the NDP's lead has either uh, disappeared or gotten uh, substantially smaller. Is that a byproduct of things she's doing, things the NDP maybe isn't doing, or or is this just kind of much ado about nothing and, and we shouldn't read too much into it? No, I, I, think we I think we should read something into it, but I think most people are reading the wrong thing. You suggested off the top that I've been in politics for a while and I've been, you know, I've run, I've been very intimately involved in a number of national campaigns, a few provincial campaigns. And what I've noticed over the years is that if you go into one of those campaigns and the polls are sort of bouncing between like one or 3% within the margin of error for all the political parties, the chances of those polls doing something different during the campaign is low. In other words, stability before an election generally is predictive of stability during an election. But when you have elections that are preceded by movements in the polls, swings of five to 7%, which are often in Canada enough to change the government. If you see movement in the, in the sort of six months to a year before an election uh, in the polls, like we've seen in Alberta, that doesn't always necessarily to me mean that the party that's ahead today is going to be ahead in the election. The party that's behind today is going to be behind the election. It's a signal of volatility. And the last couple of polls that I've seen, I'm paying less attention to the swings and more attention to people moving out of the columns and into the undecided column. So the combination of swings in polls and a growth in the undecided, to me, shows that this campaign is really going to matter and that people are not decided and that there's a lot of volatility. And I think the volatility is in two particular groups. I think the volatility is within groups who are anxious about about the letters NDP. In other words, they're ideologically not aligned with the NDP, but they really like Rachel Notley. Or, and another group of people, and I put myself in this camp, who are very comfortable voting conservative, but have deep suspicions about Daniel Smith. And so I think there's a bunch of people that are undecided uh, and they're, and they're, or, or changing their vote based on what they're hearing in the last couple of weeks. But I just think that that means the campaign is really going to matter. And it means to me, not that the UCP is more likely to win today and the NDP were more likely to win a, a month ago. It means it, this is an open game and whoever runs the best campaign is likely to win. And I guess in Alberta politics, that's fairly unusual. I mean, I think back to the 2012 election, that seemed like it was a pretty open field. You know, it was it was very competitive. But 2015, going into it, didn't feel like it was that competitive. 2019 felt like it was over before it started. And this feels like an election where, like you say, either, either party could, could win depending on what they do. I mean, this is sort of like the Redford election where things were all over the place before the, the Wild Rose was moving up with Daniel Smith and moving down and the government was moving up and moving down. And then we saw all those things repeat themselves during the election. Let's pivot to a little bit of, of sparring material here. Much of conservative politics today, especially 
here in Alberta seems to revolve around the same anti-Ottawa sentiment that I think you were tapping into with the firewall letter that you co-wrote almost 20 years ago, I guess, more than 20 years ago. And that's after Jason Kenney spent years trying to placate or, or maybe even weaponize that sentiment. Doesn't that suggest to you that trying to appease or manage this kind of anti-Ottawa, anti-federal government sentiment isn't really going to work, especially when it gets turbocharged by things like social media echo chambers and some of the bad faith actors who thrive in them. When Stephen Harper, when we sat down, when Flanagan and I and a few others sat down and wrote the firewall letter, one of the most important things that Harper said to us was, I want a list of things that Alberta can do on their own without us having to ask any other government or the federal government to do anything. And not surprisingly, these are things that other provinces have already done. So, you know, having a provincial police force is done in Ontario. It's done in Quebec. Having your own pension plan is, is done in Quebec. All of the things in that letter were things that other provinces had done or were things Alberta could do unilaterally. And people call me and some of the people around Daniel Smith sometimes call me and say, hey, man, you're, a, you're an author of the firewall letter. How could you possibly be opposed to all the stuff that we're doing? And my answer is the answer I just gave, which is these people are trying to run Ottawa. So the firewall letter for me was a provincially aimed thing that the people in a government in Alberta could do without asking for permission from Ottawa. When Stephen Harper turned his attention away from Alberta, to Ottawa and try to figure out what Ottawa could do, he helped create a national party and one government and eventually got a majority and did, fixed a bunch of things in Ottawa. And I, there's more to be done. But my point is, is if you're elected in Alberta, you should do things that Alberta can do. And if you're elected federally, you should do things that the federal government should do. And there's obviously interaction between that. But it seems to me that people who are claiming parentage from the firewall letter are missing one of its central points, which is... Stephen Harper and us wrote the firewall letter as a focus on what Alberta could do within Canada. And today, I just feel like this whole movement confuses and misunderstands those both things. And the equalization referendum is like exhibit A. Like, what the heck was Kenny expecting from a Justin Trudeau government and an equalization referendum in Alberta? Like, it's it was just a, a I you said the words and I'll agree with you for a change uh, a meaningless <laughs> referendum and I wrote I wrote that at the time anyway you know I believe in nuance and politics but it's a really important distinction between what we can do here without someone else's permission and what we can't yeah I think that's fair and I actually don't get that upset about the idea of a provincial police force like you said you know there's one in Ontario not controversial and I think we've seen some issues with the distance between the RCMP and the communities they're policing out here. And, and I don't really see any problem with fixing that. The equalization stuff, as you mentioned, that's what frustrated me. Because when I would point out to people, you know, why this was silly, you know, and say to them, look, we could get rid of the whole equalization program tomorrow. That doesn't change the amount of dollars that are flowing out of Alberta and into the federal treasury. It changes nothing. And any government that wants to govern nationally, including a conservative one, as we saw with the, you know, with Stephen Harper, where he did things to try to win votes in Quebec, would simply replace equalization with some other named program that sent money to Quebec. It's just the nature of trying to win, form government in a country where Quebec makes up the big chunk of seats that it does. The whole energy that went into the whole equalization conversation just was wasted. Can I can I push back on that for a second? Sure, I, sure. I, I have a I have a different take on equalization. The equalization program itself 
to my mind, is a deal that we have between rich provinces who want to run their own affairs and poorer provinces who can't don't have quite the ability to do so. And if Alberta wants to continue to have more autonomy, one of the most important things Canada has to allow Alberta to have more autonomy is the equalization program. Let me explain. If we didn't have an equalization program, provinces who couldn't afford to run and have, provide services at the level that Alberta, BC, and Ontario do, and that's Quebec and the Atlantic provinces, sometimes Manitoba, sometimes Saskatchewan, would all be clamoring for the federal government to run healthcare, for the federal government to run education, and for the federal government to run all the things that provinces are running today. Why doesn't that happen? Because we have an equalization program that allows Newfoundland to have an equalization program that's somewhat similar to what Alberta has. It allows Nova Scotia and Quebec and other provinces to have enough money to run these programs. This is the deal of the equalization program. And this is why I'm one of those weird conservatives that has publicly, privately, and otherwise supported the equalization program. It's part of a political deal that allows Alberta to run its own affairs. It's actually, the equalization program is oddly consistent with the firewall letter. And if we got rid of it, we'd lose some of our autonomy. I love defending the equalization program because I like being a little bit of an outlier within my own crowd. But I think I have a substantive reason for doing so. I don't think I've ever heard a better or more convincing argument from a conservative perspective defending it, that, you know, that it's a bulwark against federal intrusion, federal overreach, that the federal government would then hoover up more responsibility and control over the lives of Albertans. It's interesting that we don't hear that argument more often here, but I suspect that's because it's not politically useful to the folks who are pushing the sort of anti-Ottawa sentiments. I, I want to get into the idea of an Alberta pension plan. You know, so we've gone back and forth on this a few times. I am opposed to it. You have described it as a no-brainer. I've joke that that's because only people with no brains would support it. I, I get the argument. You know, I get the argument around demographics and lower costs and more autonomy. But are you still a fan of the idea of an Alberta pension plan if Danielle Smith is the one carrying it out? Um, I think there's a lot of bad arguments for an Alberta pension plan. Using the money to control Alberta investments is a bad idea. Changing benefits so that we have a different program than the federal program is a bad idea. And so if we're going to have a pension plan in Alberta, it should be as close to the CPP as possible, like Quebec does. We can benefit from the demographic advantage that we have. I'm anxious because I'm hearing more bad arguments than good arguments than about why we should have an Alberta pension plan. I support Alberta creating an equal, exact same plan in Alberta. It, to the extent that it should be changed, again, my writing on maternity and paternity benefits suggests we should strip those programs out of the Canada Pension Plan and create separate programs for those and make them much more generous so that mothers and families can manage the transition in and out of the workforce a lot better. But the fundamental reason for, for an Alberta Pension Plan is our demographics. And uh, there any other argument beyond that gets us into troubled territory. Yeah. I mean, I trust you to run an Alberta Pension Plan. I don't think I trust the people who are making the argument right now. I think in the past you've suggested that basically opt out and then hand the assets back over to the CPPIB to manage them on our behalf. And, you know, we would get the same sort of competence, expertise, the same benefits, but we would, we would have to pay in less because of the demographics. What I worry about is if Daniel Smith government somehow had control over our pension assets, I think the temptation to use them to backstop the oil and gas industry would be overwhelming. Her R-Star program that I've written about, a lot of people have written about, seems like the most egregious form of corporate welfare I think I've ever heard. I just don't see that she would have the willingness to resist calls to invest more in the oil and gas industry or to you know provide it with a lower cost of capital. 
that sort of doubling down on an industry that is already very oversized in, in the lives of Albertans would be a tremendous risk. The irony, of course, and I, as we continue to reference, I've been in politics long enough to remember the CPP reforms in the late 1990s. And that also coincided with the time in which I was in the Alberta government working for Ralph Klein and doing work on the single rate tax. But at that time, when they were setting up the CPBIB, what did the federal government and pension experts, who did they look at to design the CPBIB to make sure that it would be free from political interference? They looked at the Alberta Heritage Fund and they looked at the way Alberta had had a well-managed fund and a huge stream of assets that had no political interference. So curiously, the argument you're making went the other way because the federal government and the people who set up CPBIB paid very close attention to what Alberta was doing and how Alberta had set up the, the Heritage Fund. Now, of course, Ed Stelmack blew the Heritage Fund out the door and spent it instead of saved it. And we, you know, Alberta's had the worst fiscal management of any province across Canada since the year 2000. But the reality is Alberta does have a long history of managing these things well and having institutional structures that manage them well. And the CBBIB, which is, I think, globally considered one of the best managed thing, and I have no beef with that, which is why, as you point out, I have suggested to people who are worried about the government taking over these funds, that why don't we just contract to the CBBIB to manage those funds if we, if we create something here? So I guess, I guess for me, it's a trust issue. I just don't trust her not to tilt the table in a way that, well, that yeah. would, would benefit, you know, the oil and gas industry, who is part of her donor base, a big part of her donor base. It's anytime you design a policy, you should always ask yourself, how comfortable are you if your political opponents had the power you were ascribing to yourself? Where I often see conservatives say, oh, we can run this better, so we're going to take it to ourselves. And it's like, dude, you're eventually going to get replaced, right? This is a bad policy. Because your argument for it is that we're better administrators or we're more so we're more fiscally conservative. That's not a that's not a long term argument. Hey, we still live in a democracy. You, if you're in power today, it doesn't mean you're in power tomorrow. And it, it, it behooves you to, sh to steward the resources and the powers that you have, not just for yourself, but for a future government you may not agree with. So that is a perfect segue into my next uh, set of questions. With shift to the federal level, uh, where. We very much could have a different government in the near future. Um, what do you make of, of Pierre Polyev's leadership style as conservative leader? I first met Pierre Polyev when he was a Pimpley University of Calgary student. I've known Pierre for 23 years. Pierre's a smart operator. He's a very opportunistic operator. And Pierre doesn't just want to win. He wants to win big. And I got a bit nervous during the leadership because it was obvious from very early on that he was going to win the leadership, but it wasn't good enough for Pierre to win by 60%, which he probably would have if he wouldn't have done some of the things that he did. He wanted to win by 80% or 75 or whatever numbers he finally got. But to get from 60 to 70, he had to say a bunch of things that were that were arguably shifting him a little, little more in the Daniel Smith direction. Since then, he's become opportunistic and realized he's got to win an election. And I think his message discipline has been been astonishing. He has a way of communicating economic issues, uh, whether you agree with it or not, that are compelling. You know, I, I sometimes pick at his factual correctness of some of the things he says. But even so, the guy has a real penchant for communicating economic issues. At a time when economic issues are rising, I think both, both Paul Yev and Trudeau have a huge advantage 
and a huge disadvantage. So Pierre's huge advantage is his ability to communicate on economic issues, and the economic issues are, are at the fore right now. His disadvantage is that on carbon pricing, on climate, and on a bunch of issues that are absolutely critical in the 905 and the 604 lower mainland, as I've been writing for years now, I haven't seen evidence that he's going to provide a plan that's going to provide comfort for those people. And on those issues and sort of some of the convoy things and some of the sort of edgy or stuff that he's doing, he may make soccer moms in the 905 anxious, which will be a huge barrier for him. On the other side, Trudeau has an enormous positive brand. People just like the guy, despite how much conservatives hate him. They like how he sounds, looks, and feels. His huge disadvantage right now is he's lost his mojo on communicating on, on particularly economic issues. One of the reasons Trudeau won in 2015 was that he took our signature item, Child Benefits for Families, and turned it into his central thesis. But that was an economic pocketbook issue. And he was a great communicator on those in the middle class and those striving to join it, which we laugh at now. But that was a really effective way to communicate a really important idea. And he kicked our behinds on economic issues. But since then, I haven't really seen Justin Trudeau have his mojo on communicating economic issues. And if he doesn't get that back before the next election and Pierre holds on to that and, the, and we go through a mild recession, whatever, between now and then, if we have an election that's about economic issues, Pierre does well. If we have an if we have an election on other issues other than economic issues, then Pierre may get in trouble. So I wouldn't want to call that election. You know, I'd bet money on it, but I wouldn't bet my house. You know, maybe a beer. I mean, I agree again completely on on sort of the way you've broken it down here. And I, I've had this conversation with with friends of mine who are obviously of a more progressive bent, and they sort of say, "Well, I can't I can't understand how Polyev would would ever win. He's so polarizing. He's so noxious." And I, and I told them, like, listen to his messaging around housing. Listen to his messaging around economic issues. Because if you're someone who's in their 20s right now, especially in places like Toronto and Vancouver, you are so frustrated. You don't see a path for yourself. You know, you really do feel like the system is kind of rigged against you. And here's a guy who's talking your language for the first time, who's saying you have a right to be angry. You have a right to be pissed off. And, yeah. and I'm going to crack heads and, and make things happen for you. And I, I think the liberals have been very slow to you say get get his mojo back but you know i think they sort of assume that ah they're young people they'll come back to us eventually i'm not sure they will i was in the in the harper war room in 2015 and i often say this to people and they're surprised but stephen harper won exactly as many votes in 2015 in the 905 as he won in 2011 when he got his majority the number of votes was the same like mm -hmm. individual votes the difference was is that the trudeau gang were way ahead of us on social media stuff, especially Facebook and other things at the time. And they recruited a whole cadre of young people to vote that normally turn out at like 30 to 25 to 35%. And they got them to turn out at like 55 to 65%. Now that did two things. One, it meant the voter turnout, the total number of votes in those areas, that, they, that gave him the victory in a bunch of ridings where we got the same many votes in 2015 as 2011. My point just to dovetail on what you just said is we had a whole bunch of people that voted for the first time and saw an outcome. They're not necessarily conservative, but Pierre on social issues is not conservative, not, not socially conservative at all, for sure. These are kids who are having trouble finding a house or living in their parents' basement. They've got all kinds of friends that can't afford stuff. And if Pierre starts communicating to them on housing issues and the liberals come up flat, you could see all these people who voted for the first time in higher numbers for Trudeau in 2015 actually turning out and electing Pierre Polio. And that is a fascinating bit of political trivia. If the people that 
Trudeau motivated in 2015 and now understand the power of voting because they got what they wanted, flip to vote for the other guy because his his messaging reflects their concerns. That's that's a pretty interesting little bit of political trivia. Except for their attitude towards climate policy and carbon pricing. I, I really think that that is the one thing that kind of will give them pause. And I, I guess the part I don't understand is if it's so obvious to you, you've been inside these war rooms, you understand this stuff. If it's obvious to me, why isn't it obvious to them? Why have they painted themselves into this corner where they have to really just go kicking and screaming on any climate policy because they might lose votes in Alberta? Like, I just, I don't understand how smart people can be so dumb. Well, I think what they would say, uh, I'll do this in economic terms because I am an economist, which is that the environment is a luxury good. And what I mean by that is that countries can only afford to spend money and fix the environment if they've got their economic fundamentals right. If we go into the next election and there's a lot of economic anxiety, the environment issues are going to be pushed way down the scale. And people will vote on economic and pocketbook, macro and microeconomic issues. Will come one, two, three, four, and five will be a list of macro and microeconomic issues, and the environment will go push down to seven, eight, and nine. So you see the environment move up and down the issue grid, and it's directly correlated with economic anxiety. If people are economically anxious, they, I don't say they care less about the environment, they, but they care more about something else. But when they're economically comfortable and they've got jobs and not worried about the economy, then suddenly the environment comes way up the way up the issue grid. And I think there's no question that if the environment comes back up the issue grid, if, if we're into a rosy economic situation when the next election, that's going to be very bad for the conservatives. I take your point about environmental issues kind of rising and falling up the salience grid, depending on on how strong the economy is. But what's the downside? Given that they know they need to break through in the, in the GTA, given that they know there's this pool of young voters who are sort of open to their other messaging, what's the downside of coming out and saying, you know what, carbon pricing is a conservative idea. We're going to keep the carbon price. We're going we're to stick with the schedule that, that's been put in place, but we're going to give all the money back to you through tax cuts and just sort of turn it to that more conservative frame. What, where's the downside in doing that? The conservatives see the climate issue as a tax issue and liberals see the climate issue as a climate issue. That has been that way since the 2008 Harper election against Stephen Dion is the answer. And it's the answer to your question. I personally have said, as you know, been arguing in favor of a, of a carbon tax. It's the most conservative way. If you believe climate change is real and if you believe we should do something about it, the most conservative solution to that problem is a carbon tax. So allows a maximum amount of market mechanisms to do their work. And the fact that conservatives haven't gone there in Canada, where they have gone there in the UK and many other places, has to do with the framing of this issue as a tax issue in the late in the late 2000s as opposed to a climate issue and you know I just think it'll take a generation of conservatives to get over that but it's going to hurt us I agree so let's say we you know we have another federal election and let's say that the liberals kind of eke out another win is the next cycle going to be the one where the conservative party federally has a reset on this issue and and says okay maybe we need to stop losing elections over and over again because of the climate issue and we we do something more constructive on carbon pricing or, or are they just dug in to a degree where like you say it, it requires generational change let me give you two answers to that question the first answer is in the fall of 2017 you had the most conservative party in British Columbia, the BC Liberals, the most conservative party in Ontario, the progressive conservatives under Patrick Brown, and the most conservative party in Quebec. All three of those provinces, the most conservative options supported a carbon price. So not too long ago, we were in a situation where 
the most conservative party in the three most populous provinces of Canada favor a carbon price. The second thing I would say is, despite the rhetoric of Jason Kenney and Daniel Smith and Doug Ford, the reality is that 70% of emissions in Alberta are being taxed by the provincial government using a carbon tax. Industrial emissions in Alberta are taxed in a carbon tax and the revenue is collected by the provincial government. In Ontario, 40% of emissions soon will be taxed by the Doug Ford government under their own industrial emissions plan. Because, hey, look, man, if we tax these things, we get to decide what to do with the revenue. The argument ultimately in Alberta and in Ontario will be, why the heck are we letting Justin Trudeau decide how to get reelected using retail carbon price emissions as opposed to us bringing them home? If you look at how the federal rebate program is designed, there's a slight advantage toward downtowns, people who don't drive, people who vote center-left, and a disadvantage for people in rural and people who tend to vote conservative. And so the current rebate program under the current carbon tax favors Trudeau's voting coalition. Surprise, surprise. So why the heck aren't conservatives taking over those revenues and fixing some of those problems, how I would define it, fixing some of those problems and moving some of the advantages toward the suburbs, so the soccer moms, the soccer families, and toward rural. So I just think raw political argument may ultimately win the day, as it has on industrial emissions. And so we have conservative governments who publicly say they, are, they don't favor a carbon tax who are actually administering one in their own jurisdiction. My response to that would be, that I think, one of the defining aspects of conservative politics right now, again, at least to me, is that they are terrified. The leaders in these parties are terrified of the the sort of further far right flank it feels like the tail is wagging the dog uh, a fair bit and and no more so than on the climate issue that they they can't go to the place where i think a lot of them want to go because they're worried that they're going to lose that five to ten percent i think it explains a lot of daniel smith's policies polyev's approach has been about absorbing that sort of ppc flank i guess my last question here you know what are the long-term consequences of letting the strategy in conservative circles be governed by the needs and the sort of peculiar interests of this further far-right group. I used to say that the members of the conservative party live on a different planet than the voters of the conservative party. What I say today is that the members of conservative parties in Canada live in a different solar system than the voters of the conservative party. And that's a tension, and I've said many times, managing that tension is the biggest challenge of being a conservative leader today. That is the central challenge. How do you manage the fact that the members of your party and the donors to your party live in a different solar system than the voters of your party? And I just think we ultimately have to resolve that. And maybe it's maybe it's changing the donation, the way we collect donations. Maybe it's going back to corporate and allowing corporate and union donations because it the way we do it now gives way too much power to these to these people who live in a different solar system. Maybe it's having minimum donation levels instead of maximum donation levels. So you have to donate at least a thousand bucks and take see all the twenty dollar crazy people uh, out of off the donor list of our party. I don't know exactly how we're going to resolve it. I just know if we don't resolve it, we're going to face a long string of losses. And at some point, as with Stephen Harper in the uh, late 1990s, early 2000s, you get sick of losing and you do something about it. Okay. I uh, I look forward to more losing uh, and then everyone's <laughs> getting, getting sick of it and, and, and changing their ways. I think that's a wonderful idea. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. I really appreciate 
you sharing your your wisdom and expertise. You know, I, I had a feeling we weren't going to disagree very much, and and that's okay. It's always a, a pleasure to talk to people in in I guess sort of real life. You know, over over Zoom because uh, it just takes a lot of the a lot of the nastiness out of it. So thank you for joining me here today. Thanks, Max. And civil conversations like this are really important, especially today when so many people refuse to. They say that my opponents are not just wrong; they're evil, and it's nice to be able to say my opponents are wrong, but they're not evil. And uh, <laughs> You know, we need we need a whole lot more people saying my opponents are wrong, but they're not evil. And uh, we hear too little of that these days. So thanks for doing this. Just a reminder that we need your help to continue our podcasts. Every donation helps. And please rate us a five on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends, your family. We want everyone to find us. Maxed Out is produced by Canada's National Observer. Our managing producer for podcasts is Sandra Bartlett. Associate producer, Zara Kozema. The executive editor of Canada's National Observer is Karen Puglese. Our publisher is Linda Solomon-Wood. I'm Max Fawcett. And next week, it's Hot Politics with David Mackay. See you in two weeks.